Okay, Steve, you there? I'm here. All right. Hey, folks. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, have my guest on today, Dr. Steve Diane. Um, Steve has had a fascinating career, and uh, it's going to get be hard for me actually to get through all of this. The things I want to ask him. Um, for those of you who don't know Steve, um, you know, I, I think I, I've known Steve for about 20 years now. You finished what, in 2001, Steve? Uh, I finished in uh, 2000 with my fellowship. 2000, yeah. So, you know, when, and um, he did his training with Dr. Uh, Perkins, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yes. And uh, you stayed on in, you know, uh, Lakeshore Drive there in Dr. Tardy Suite, and you kind of took over his practice. And um, Steve and I have a couple things in, in common. We're kind of a, a little on the outside. Uh, I don't know how you, you know, we've always been kind of entrepreneurs. I've always been fascinated by his career because he's doing things that are just not conventional uh, by most of our standards. And, and I try to do the same thing. So uh, without further ado, um, I wanted to kind of dig, dig right into Steve's life and, and what, what he's been up to. I, I do re reflect back to, I remember once you and I took off at the Seattle rhinoplasty meeting. Do you remember that? I do. And I, I was always impressed by the fact that you were like, what's going on? What's, what's up? You know, what are you working on? Um, Steve is one of these guys who is, is very much a forward thinker and does not just accept, accept the status quo. So uh, this, this ought to be a fun, uh, fun interview. Um, so Steve, where did you, where'd you grow up? Uh, I kind of grew up uh, all around Chicago. Uh, my parents split when I was little. I'm, I'm a hybrid. My dad's a Moroccan immigrant, and my mom is uh, is American by many generations, but originally from Eastern Europe somewhere. And um, I spent time between the two. They divorced when I was young, so I spent the time between the two of them. Got it. Well, I'm gonna at some point I'm gonna talk to you about your travel because I find uh, you know I, I know you love to travel, and uh, I want to hear some of the lessons that you've learned, but. Um, so tell me about your tell me about your family. I, I know a little bit about it, but th those who don't know you don't know you. So um, as this before, I, my my parents were uh, my dad's from Morocco. He came to the U.S. as an immigrant, barely speaking English, no education, hardly at all. I don't even think he finished high school. And he met my mom. They got married. Soon afterwards, they got divorced. And my mom got struck, unfortunately, with multiple sclerosis at a young age. So early on, I was it was a lot of me and my sister work, you know, taking care of my sister. We moved in with my grandparents, and um, I think it was like nine or ten years old. I was already starting to look to get work because um, we uh, we had a tough go of it. You know, we were on government assistance, and I look back and I say it was the luckiest time of my life to have to have a background like that because I strongly believe that the best resource to create something special is nothing, and you get awfully creative when you start out that way. And you also, it also gave me a lot of courage and strength as I got older and went into practice, realizing that if you've had nothing, you don't fear anything. Right. No, you've made some very bold moves. And I remember when I first came to where I am, I didn't know a soul. And people said to me, you know, how are you going to do it? I said, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm used to living on nothing. So, uh, it's a, you know, everything above that is, you know, I, I wasn't looking for some big salary and um, it makes, it makes you, a, it makes you a scrapper, so to speak. Right. It makes you a scrapper. And when I first went into practice, and I, I think you did something similar, is I just said, you know what, I'm going to go out and be a plastic surgeon, a cosmetic physician. And um, at the time, it was it was unconventional. You were supposed to come in and work in the emergency rooms and, you know, do ENT first before becoming a plastic surgeon. And I was like, no, nope, I'm just going straight out. I'm going to go right to become a plastic surgeon. And, and I, I really did that. I mean, you, you went right out 
uh, and it was just about the time the non-surgical thing started to take off and you really embraced it probably before anyone. So I got super lucky because Botox just came out then and I pole vaulted on Botox at the time. Surgeons really weren't doing it. Dermatologists weren't really sure they wanted to adopt it. And one vial cost the same amount of money as it cost to treat one patient. So it really wasn't something that you can, that can be very profitable. But I looked at Botox as a big winner as a marketing expense. I thought to myself, if I get someone in the office and I do Botox on them, they're going to hopefully fall in love with me and they'll become my patient. I'll turn them into a surgical patient or a long-term patient. And it worked because in the beginning, I was able to turn 40% of those patients into surgical patients. I published an article on that in 2007 in uh, one of our journals showing the value of these non-surgical treatments lead to grow a surgical practice. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting much more interested in the, the curious benefits of this product, which were just, I mean, look, it's changed our, it changed our world. All of a sudden it's completely changed because of what Botox was. And I was fortunate to jump on that early on. Yeah. You were definitely, you know, kind of a visionary back then actually so much. So there, as you know, there were a number of our colleagues that were like, I'm a surgeon. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do that stuff. That's beneath me. Right. They were against it. And it's really, because a lot of our practices today, you know, the fastest growing segment of aesthetic medicine is non-surgical. It's 10 times the size of the, of the surgical market and it continues to grow at a rapid rate. And to not put ourselves front and center in that is really a mistake. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hold that thought because I'm really curious to hear about which I'm going to ask you at some point, you know, the, the future. So I was, you know, I know back then you, you had, do you still have, you opened uh, at least one and maybe a number of aesthetic schools. I mean, what was that all about? What, what, you know, just cause I know you're an entrepreneur. So you're like, uh, what was your thinking back then? So, uh, right away I decided to diversify and create multiple spokes to my practice and all of it was geared to grow my practice and they all had to work together. So one of the spokes or components that I created was an aesthetic school. And it was a very, very easy reason why I did that because at the time estheticians are six to like uh, 600,000 estheticians or cosmetologists plus estheticians in the United States. And they are the hair care dressers of the world. They sit in spas and many of them are, have a high school education, nothing more than that, but they go to aesthetic school and they are gatekeepers. So I became friendly with them early on because they sent me a lot of cosmetic patients. And I knew that lots of women who were my patients were going to spas and they would ask their estheticians who's good. And I wanted them to refer to me. So I started to get you know, friendly with them and I started going to their schools and teaching at their schools and it helped grow my surgical practice. And then they started really liking when I was teaching them and I enjoyed teaching them because to me, education is a passion of mine and it's something that I strongly believe is important. So I started training at their training at their schools and eventually I developed my own school and they started coming here. And that was about 10, 12 years ago where we started doing postgraduate education for estheticians. Mm -hmm. and now we've trained over 10,000 of them and it's been a big part of my practice and it's helped grow the surgical practice. Sure. So do you still have, do you still have your aesthetic school? I do, but like all things is transitioning as we go to the future. At times, I've also did um, medical training. So when Botox and fillers first came out, many doctors weren't didn't really know much about it. So I started a program called College of Cosmetic Medicine. We went around the country training other doctors how to, how to use Botox and fillers. And that had a great run for about seven years. I ended up selling that company a while back. And um, but it was, it, was a, it was a good way to teach doctors also. You know, education is always changing and it continues to change. And the way I was doing it in the past is not the way it's going to be done in the future. Right. So, no, I mean, hey, 
Uh, you know, uh, I, I always say that you know, I don't know what success is, but the, the, the last hurdle before success is complacency, you know, and the only thing more expensive than not change or change is not change. And, you know, people don't change and evolve. They go belly up, you know, Agree. those in the, in the di- dinosaurs. Um, so I know you, so you did that for a period to your no, I know you're no longer run. I mean, listen, you run the big, the meeting, the big meetings um, now, so you've totally, you know, catapulted all of that. Um, do you still have your aesthetic school in Chicago? I still have the aesthetic school in Chicago and it still runs. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you see? Anything change in there? Yes. I think it's going to change as my goal is to expand it. And in fact, I'm interviewing someone today to help me expand it. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And uh, we'll see, you know, uh, maybe we'll start to go back to training doctors and physicians again on some of the devices and non-surgical treatments as that continues to grow. Well, I mean, what hasn't worked with the aesthetic school? Because I know I know other people that, that have tried it. Some people have had success. Some people have not. Uh, you know, like anything, it, you have to have someone who's a champion of it. Yeah. And, you know this as well as I do. There's only so much I can do, and I need to have someone who can who can run with it. And my experience has been, no matter what new venture I've started, it always comes down to who I team up with to run it. And if I have someone who's motivated and hungry and visionary and can and can execute, it will grow and it will do well. You know, it took it took me a long time to understand that. Uh, if I have a project in mind now, I try to, and sometimes it takes six months or a year to find someone, but then you bite the bullet and you put them and it just, it goes forward because you can't possibly do it yourself, right? We have too many other things we're trying to do. hundred percent agree. Yeah. So one of your, one of your better decisions in life was, uh, I know when you teamed up with, uh, with Tracy, uh, Weldon now, but Tracy drum, who I have just the utmost respect for her. Um, and she, I know she was going back and forth be- between Florida and Chicago, but, uh, tell me what, you know, how did you end up working with Tracy and what was that? I mean, you had if marketing, I know you, so- I think I sold it, right? Yeah. So that was a great part of my career and that was really helpful. You know, Tracy came in here out of, out of, out of college. She was young and she was, and she was bright and smart and creative and hungry and hardworking. And it was just a great talent. And I was lucky to get her at that time period. And I had a vision to create a marketing company. At the time, I was doing a lot of marketing on my own. We called it guerrilla marketing because I had no money. And when you have no money, you figure out how to get busy quickly by getting creative. And I got really creative. I came up with all these tools and ideas. This is before social media was so so, uh, prevalent. But these tools and ideas started working. And I was getting busy really fast. Within three years, I had built a pretty sizable practice, all with these unique marketing tools that cost little to nothing. And Tracy came in, and at the time, it was pretty unusual to hire a marketing person. No practice had a marketing person. I said, Tracy, you want to help with marketing? And she's like, okay. And we started working on it. And then I wrote a book about my experience five years in practice. And the book just became really popular. And people started calling all the time and asking for my tools. So I was giving them my tools. And after a while, I'm like, this is a business here because so many people were calling. I couldn't handle all the phone calls. So Tracy and I decided to start this company called If Marketing, What If, What If Marketing. And before you knew it, we grew it. And within seven years, we had 4,000 accounts. We were getting busy, 4,000 doctor accounts. And I had 20 some, 22 employees. 
and it was it grew fast and it was we were it was great i learned a lot about marketing and to this day you know marketing is something that's very, comes to me very simple and very easily but i spent a lot of time getting a lot of people busy and that's expanded now to help a lot of large fortune 500 companies with their marketing so i get invited to a lot of great places to to share ideas and that's that's a lot of fun to do for me so i was wondering how you you know because I, I know early on, you know, you, you had a, a, a bit of success with that. And then, you know, you started speaking, you know, here, there and everywhere. I mean, what was, I mean, what was the, th- I mean, I know you love to travel. But what was the impetus to, uh, I know you were always very curious too, whether it was neuromodulators or the next thing. Um, was it, you, you know, you were asked or you started getting curious and seeing what's going on in Europe? No, I mean, it started out like, like most things, somewhat serendipitous. I ended up building a research company and a lot of it became because I wanted to get devices in my office and I couldn't afford the devices. So the only way for me to get these devices in my office, these big lasers at the time from laser hair removal to non-ablative laser resurfacing, which was popular back in the early 2000s, is I wrote protocols and I would submit those protocols to the companies and the companies would say, okay, we'll do a study. And I would charge them next to nothing because I just wanted the machine in my office for the terms of the study. And then I started doing all these studies and I started getting you know, results and I started publishing them. I was never a writer, but all of a sudden I went from someone who failed out of high school English to becoming a writer because I was writing all these papers by necessity. And after I started writing it, someone said, do you want to come speak about it? I'm like, speak about it? I never really thought about it. So I remember the first time someone, a company flew me to California to present the data and I'm like, you're going to buy me a ticket to Florida, to California? Like, yeah. So they bought me a ticket to California. I got to go to California. I got to speak at a conference. I was so nervous. And I gave the lecture. And they said, wow, that was really good. Will you do it again? And they asked me 13 times more in that year to, to give lectures, to present the data. So I started. that's how I started doing it. And then one machine led to another machine, led to then some studies with Botox and Dysport. And then I started speaking on these things because people started asking me to speak about my, what I was writing. So that's where the the traveling started. And I'm, I've always been an explorer. And I believe that when you grow your reference range, when you travel, you get better at who you are because you see more and you come back with a greater refer, reference range. And I, I think you have a better understanding of your patients and who you are. So those two things kind of went together. And then where it really exploded was um, I wrote a book. And the book I wrote, I, I wrote five books, but my last book uh, in 2014, I, I published it and became a New York Times bestseller. And that book really opened up all the doors. And after that, my career completely changed because it was no longer speaking just about my research findings. Now people wanted to hear about my ideas that were somewhat philosophical and forward thinking. And I kind of merged philosophy and science mm-hmm. and logic. And that that has been where my where my forte is now. But all that stemmed from this book that I wrote. It was called Sublimely Exposed that hit really big. And that was really helpful for me. And that really sealed my travel. So now it's like every month I'm in a, I'm in a different continent. In fact, I'm getting European citizenship now. Is that right? Yeah. So what is it, you know, um, so for those who, who haven't read your book, tell us, you know, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about, about the book. And before I, I have you <laughs> about, gosh, about two or three years ago, my wife says to me, you got to hear this guy. I said, what? She goes, you got to hear this guy on YouTube. He, he, he's like got a whole different vision of the future of plastic surgery. So she pulls it up. And of course it's Dr. Steve Diane. I was, uh, I said, I said, honey, I know Steve very well. She goes, she goes, no, this guy's brilliant. So it must've been right after that, you know, along that time, uh, that time frame. So she thinks you're a celebrity. Well, you are to some degree, but so, so tell us about the book. 
So the book was, I was struggling with the concept of science and attraction. And I teach it. I taught an undergrad class at, at DePaul University in the science of beauty, its impact on culture and business in America. And this started out as a syllabus for my class. But the more I was writing, I was really doing an introspective look at myself, what I was attracted to and why, and trying to better understand what we were doing as a field. And when we grew up in aesthetic medicine, it was all about making people beautiful. And you, any clinician can tell you really quickly, you can make someone perfect. You know, mathematically, their face is beautiful, but they're not happy. And at the end of the day, you fail. I could show you great before and after pictures, but if the patient's not happy, I fail as a practitioner and I'm not doing my job. So what was I really doing? What was my goal? And I realized that my goal was to improve self-esteem or confidence. I wanted to make people feel better about themselves. So as I drove deep down into that, I looked into the evolutionary biology behind that and it it forced me to study, you know, the concepts of beauty from the classics up to the future, up to the current time. And I, I wrote about that, about what we find beautiful and why. And the more I dived into this, you'd be surprised the things that we're attracted to. And so much of this is primal and we're pre-wired and, and, you, and you can easily recognize what's, what's going to be attractive to you. If you go back and look at, I'm a Darwinian now at, at, at base. I kind of believe in Darwin and the, the survival of the fittest is, can explain a lot of our behaviors. And I'm not saying um, thoughts. You know, we, can, we always have opportunity to change or act on differently, but I think if we understand that, then we understand why we think a certain way. Anyways, that helped me a lot. And the book really became controversial because I brought, I bring up a lot of things that people don't want to know that are politically incorrect, but everyone's like, yeah, that's true. That's true. Even though you don't really want to say, think it's true, but it is. Tell me, tell me one. <laughs> tell me one. Like, okay, if, um, if, uh, okay, if a naked woman stands in front of a man, where does he look first? And there's studies I, on this and it's, it's not that right i mean pardon me it's it's hard to argue when you've got some data to back it up there's so much science overwhelmingly that shows that you know we have primal instincts that attract us to certain parts of a female body for a male and vice versa for a female there's certain things they look at a male and there's differences in what females find attractive when they're ovulating versus non-ovulating um portions of females faces change when they're ovulating um, you can see fertility in a, in a face and you can see fertility in a body and humans are designed to recognize that. So these are things that we don't want to believe, but that have somewhat of a truth and it's cross-cultural. So 50% of what we all find beautiful is consistent across all people, all species, regardless of where you come from. 50% is non-shared. I mean, that's where the differences come. And a lot of what we do is we work in the 50% that's non-shared and we're able to do things to alter someone's appearance to make them feel better about themselves. It's not about making them look physically more beautiful. It's about making them feel better about themselves. And the number one thing, the, the number one factor that makes someone attractive, in my opinion, is confidence. There's nothing more attractive than confidence. A person who struts across the room with their head you know, up and their shoulders back, that's the one we all want to associate with, regardless of what they look like physically. So our job is to help, is, is to help enhance confidence, in my opinion. Fascinating. I mean, fascinating and and so absolutely, absolutely true. Um, so tell me about your your current like. What's your current practice like now? I mean, I I know a bit about it, but where where are you spending your time? What do you like to do? So my practice has morphed a lot because I have so many different interests. So it's about twenty five percent clinical now, between surgical and non surgical. And I'm not operating as much as I used to. I'm still doing. I mean, a pretty heavy load compared to I think the the rest of the plastic surgeons around the country, but nowhere near what I was in the past. So maybe one day or two days a week of surgery, and then about a day or two of non-surgical. I have, you know, nurses and PAs and a fellow 
who spend time with me also, and they're getting experience in these different areas. Research is a big part of my practice. I built up the research company. I sold off half of it last year to the, a group of dermatologists. So I have 37 dermatology partners now in research, and we're doing lots of phase two, three, and four clinical trials, which is really exciting to me because I like being on the cutting edge of new procedures and products, and that's fun. So I'm doing that about 25%. 25% is at least travel and consulting right now. And that I'm every every month I'm in a different continent. Every other week I'm in a different city. And I, I do enjoy it. I get to meet a lot of great people. I have a lot of great friends all around the world. And I always come back different when every time I go somewhere new. Yeah. Now I'm taking advantage of it. If I go somewhere great, I'm trying to take a day or two for myself. In the past, I'd fly in and fly out. My kids a little yeah. bit. You know? In there. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you know, how many times, right? You go in, you do your thing and you leave. Yeah, some of these people are like, oh, isn't wasn't it glamorous? You were just in Tokyo. I'm like, okay, I went from the airport to the hotel, the hotel back to the airport. I saw nothing. I did have some sushi on the airplane, if that counts, but that was Tokyo. <laughs> so lots of times I see nothing other than a hotel, and it's not as glamorous as it seems, mm-hmm. but it's it's part of the world I'm I'm used to. Yeah. So talk to me about um your career as it's developed if you want to call a keynote speaker or whatever i mean i know you love to speak uh i uh, your your speaking's fascinating i've always i've always uh, enjoyed it where what like what's your vision where do you want to go with it i mean we all know i mean you're running the big you know vegas cosmetic surgery meeting um that's a huge responsibility as well as the uh you know miami cosmetic surgery meeting um, where, where do you want to go with all this? I mean, what, what, what is it that, I mean, you certainly have a ton of stuff on your plate. I don't know how you do it. Um, where, where are you looking to go with this and what, you know, why, why are you doing it? Um, well, I want to change the world and I've always been, that's always been my plan from the beginning. Now, the difference is being older is that I know I may not change the world, but I also know I'm not going to stop trying. When I was younger, I actually thought I was be able to do it. So, you know, what does that mean? So I have a vision to, to keep trying to make people think a little bit differently to look at something and challenge the conventional wisdoms and the status quo of, of aesthetic medicine and maybe even some of our behaviors. And I love when I get up on stage, my, my goal is to come up with some unique idea and some unique perspective that no one's thought about before and then present that to the audience. So that they leave there thinking like, wow, I never thought of that like that before. And oftentimes when someone leaves a, one of my lectures, they may not remember everything I said, but they certainly will never forget how I made them feel. And that's really what I try to get across when I'm done with the lecture. And it's been effective for me. I've, I've become a speaker by default because I've done so much of it now. And I've kind of got my routine down. And uh, I feel comfortable that I can entertain and shock an audience. So the keynote speaking is, is a lot of fun now. I'll get 20, 25 minutes at some big stage with thousands of people in the audience. And I enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing that. But it, I but I owe them. I can't go into this room and I can't get up on stage unless I'm going to deliver something fantastic. So, you there? You know, I don't just mail it in. I spend hours and hours and hours coming up with something. And that's the part no one sees because you have to have unique insight. I have lots of young people come to me and say, I want to be on stage. I want to be famous. But it's like you have to have something unique to say, an insight that no one's ever thought about. And then you can get up and, and deliver it. But you got to learn how to deliver it well, but not till you have something unique to say. Yeah. So like, where's your next place you're going to speak in? Well, I mean, I, I, I was, I'm, I was supposed to go to Monaco for the AMWC, but unfortunately due to the current you know virus, it, it got rescheduled. So that's, this has changed my world a lot with this virus. Right. You have to, you'll have to stay home, drink beer and shoot darts or something, right? Yeah. I think my office staff's being speaking to me because I'm here too much now. 
So what are, what are one of the biggest lessons that you've learned from one of your, listen, any, we all, we all have our things. We, I don't say fail at, but we, you know, we, we had a uh, misfire. What, what are one of the biggest lessons you learned uh, maybe to, is a helpful hint for people trying to, you know, figure out their career and move forward. So uh, that's a great question. I think it's so individual for everyone. I, I guess if I were to say general, it's not to be afraid to fail. We live in a world where we're so afraid to fail, especially doctors. You know, you go through M&M conference, morbidity, mortality conference, which all surgeons can remember. And guy, it was scary to talk about things that may have not gone perfectly well and the way we used to get viscerated for that. But the reality is in business and life, failure is good. Failure is necessary. If you don't fail, you'll never be successful. And it's okay to fail. You don't want to make stupid mistakes over and over again, but you should fail 25% of the time. So I, I encourage my staff to fail and try and because you always learn something every time you you fail the the problem is that we sweep it under the rug but no don't sweep it under the rug encourage the failures celebrate the failures and learn from the failures and that's okay so i've you know i think i've sold four businesses but i probably bankrupted about 12 mm-hmm. no one asked me about the ones that have bankrupted but they all want to know about the ones that have succeeded you know my book took 13 tries i got 13 rejections before my book eventually got picked up and became a new york times bestseller i'll never forget the day i i, I was talking to my staff i'm like guess what guys the book came out. It's a New York Times bestseller. We were celebrating. We had a party. And one of my staff members was like, well, don't you want to call up the 13 people that rejected you and say, see, I told you so? I'm like, no. It's because they rejected it 13 times that it became a New York Times bestseller. Every time it got rejected, it got better. So that was the probably the lesson that I think I got from that that I think all, all of us could benefit from. Well, look, it, it, most people, as you know, uh, play it safe. And, you know, I've mentored a lot of doctors and fellows and residents and so many people want, in fact, I was talking to my incoming fellow next year and he's trying to secure a job before he comes to fellowship. And I said to him, you know, he he was, I just, you know, I want the security of knowing, I said, stop, you know, I mean, get here and I'll help you get through it. But, uh, you know, why do you need, you know, wants to play it safe, right? You want to know what he's doing before he, you know, but if you don't allow yourself to fail, you never get better. And I, I, it's funny you say that. I don't, I never heard the word 20 or the number 25%, but I've had my share of failures, you know, and you, and it hurts, especially when you lose, you know, lose big hunks of money. But what eventually happens is you learn from it. If right. If you're smart, um, you know, if you're not, just not reckless. Um, right. Yeah. Totally agree with you. But I, you, you can't be afraid to, you know, you can't be afraid to fall flat and get back up. And I think it's interesting because I talk to people who have a, you know, big degrees of success like you have. And, and I, what I really find is a common thread is they were not handed anything growing up. Uh, they learned to be a scrapper. And I think one of my fears moving forward with our next generation is we don't want to spoil our kids or we're going to be, you know, right. I mean, don't you want your kids to, 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 to grow up being a scrapper too, or because we don't want to ruin them for the future and take away their drive. So I 100% think that's the most difficult task I have is to give my kids that hunger because there's nothing more valuable than that. The greatest privilege I ever had was growing up with nothing. It was the greatest privilege I have. I was so lucky because it makes you creative, it makes you hungry, and it makes you not fear it. And it's and something that we don't have to say. When someone comes to me and my staff and say, what's the budget? I'm like, it's zero. I mean, the budget's zero. The budget's zero. Get as close to it as you can. Once you give someone a budget, then they'll spend up to that budget and it takes away creativity. When you have a zero budget, then you have to think about, well, how do I get that machine or how do I get that person in the door? You get creative. You figure out with zero dollar ways to do it. And that was how I built the marketing company. The budget was always zero. Now, Tommy, get as close to that as you can. 
So it's funny. I had one of my former fellows one. Uh, this was back in 2002. Wanted to, you know, us to bring on fat crafting, and so I gave her. I gave her a budget, but it wasn't a lot. It was like 1,100 bucks, right? And so she went out and she got a centrifuge, you know, off of eBay and this. Anyway, the bottom line, she came in around 350 bucks. She goes, Dr. Williams. She goes, guess what? I, you know, I, I got all this stuff for like 350 bucks. You know what that means? We have another so much to spend, right? I said, no, what it means, Jeannie, is you came in under budget. Yeah. <laughs> That doesn't mean we go spend the rest. Um, yeah. But uh, so what, you know, what are the things, you know, uh, obviously you don't fear a lot of things because you, you've you been very bold in your decisions in, in, in your career. What are the kind of things that you, and I don't really use the word fear. What I use is preoccupied because I'm, you know, we'll be driving the car. My wife says, okay, what are you working on now, honey? Um, I'm, I'm always preoccupied because I'm like, what, what next? And what if, what is, what is Steve Diane thinking about where, you know, What's your next move? What, you know, what are you, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do next? Well, you know, my, my mind is constantly racing with new, new things. You know, I have two or three books that are on the, on the back burner that I really want to write. And I started putting outlines together on them. So I, I continue, I continue to add to those, but those are going to take a lot of chunk of time. So I don't see myself doing that while I'm in the practice. You know, I, I continue to, to grow my, um, the, the speaking and the teaching. I really enjoy that. Um, and while I enjoy surgery, it doesn't give me the same um, excitement as it did 15, 20 years ago. I like being in the operating room, but it's not the it's not the thing that first thing I want to do in the morning. So I, I've kind of shifted from that. I do really enjoy the um, doing the meetings. I think I can see myself doing more of that. Yeah. I, I guess my my goal ultimately is is to live in the moment as much as I can. Yeah. Like, you know, people say, "Well, what's success?" Well, I, I can't say I define success by money because if I really wanted to make a lot more money, I would, I would do things differently. I could have spent a lot more time operating and doing other things, but I really enjoy being present in the moment. And that is what I'm always searching for. Mm-hmm. So here's something I want to ask you because I, I wrestle with this. It's one of my dilemmas. So um, I'm a couple of years older than you. I'm 60. Right. And yet I really feel like I'm, I feel like I'm at the top of my career as far as surgically. Right. But okay. Um, but I'm a little bored. Okay. So, and I, I say that because I could walk away from the surgery and I, you know, and I don't need to, I don't need to work anymore. Um, I find the business aspect of what I do fascinating. I've got all kinds of stuff going on and yet it's almost like, people think you can't be a good doctor. Right. Yeah. Right. So you almost have to do this, like, you know, on the, on the, on the side, because you don't certainly don't want your, your, you know, your team or, I mean, I do enjoy doing a facelift. Right. But you know, it's almost like one of my, one of my, this business consultant I work with says, you know, I've dealt with enough of you guys with ADD and entrepreneurs, you know what, when you, when you get burned out, you know what that means? It's just boredom. You know, you're just bored. You need to find something else that excites you. So how do we, you know, it's, do you find the same challenge because people look at you as like, you know, well, you must not have much of a busy practice if you're so just interested in doing all this other stuff. But I find there's so much other stuff out there, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I understand you completely. I'll have people say to me, so are you, do you, do you still operate or are you, you're a doctor? Like that's always confusing to someone when they see you do something else. But I, I believe that the stuff I do outside of medicine actually makes me a better doctor. I think I become more creative in the operating room and I think I give more attention to my patients. So I want to believe that it makes me a better surgeon, not necessarily a, a less interested or, or a less devoted surgeon. 
And I, I feel like we struggle with that with our colleagues as well as, as the consumers out there who expect you to be 100% just all the time, just being in the operating room. And I don't necessarily think that that's the best way to go. And yes, there's a lot of things out there that excite me. And every time I, you know, delve into a new world, which I do all the time, I, I get so much better at, at, at who I am as a person and also who I am as a professional. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you think this industry is going? You know, you've, we've, we have seen a you know, right, tremendous change in the past 10, 20 years. Uh, it's like a different industry. Where do you think it's all going? You know, what are your predictions? I think we're constantly changing. And I think it, we've seen the massive change. We went from a field that was surgical for the last 100 years to also non-surgical dominating it and to the market expanding to well beyond surgeons, to all kinds of practitioners doing it. And that that train has left the station. I mean, non-surgical Botox fillers, lasers, all that's being done by everyone. And it's not going to be stopped. And it's being commoditized, unfortunately. I think the field's going to continue to expand. I think we're going to start to look and recognize that there's so much more to making someone attractive. And I don't think it's just beauty, but attractive. And that's the self-confidence component, which includes things like dental, endocrine, um, you know, and nutrition. And when we really start seeing what we do, we, we make people more confident. There's so many different ways we make up. There's so many different things that we do that I think we have to start to encompass all of this as we're all kind of connected in the same thing and making people feel better about themselves. And then I think the component where this is going to completely change is mood because I think at the end of the day, what we do is we improve mood. We make people happier and feel better about themselves. And now I've proven it in multiple studies. And I think our neurotoxins, our fillers, and our surgical treatments make people better. So I see this become like psychoesthetic medicine. We're going to start to look at the emotional impacts of our treatments. And that's going to start to become an outcome we're going to start looking at. So that's that's where I see it going in the future. The days of just making a perfect nose on a face, I think, are over. Mm-hmm. And the people who like doing that, great. But you can make a perfect nose, but it doesn't mean you're successful by any stretch of the means. No, and, 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 and as you know, I mean, it was interesting that the last round of plastic meeting we had, somebody on the podium said, okay, I want a show of hands of anyone who really feels like they've mastered this operation, right? And not one hand goes up. Um, you know, rhinoplasty is not a perfect operation. And so my thinking, and I'm not getting into it because it's not about me, but my thinking has totally changed as compared to, you know, 20 years ago and even 10 years ago with rhinoplasty. Um, do you think moving forward? I mean, you know, so, you know, you're a facial plastic surgeon. Let's talk about plastic surgeons. Is there, you know, what is our role moving forward? Is all this going to be commoditized? Is it going to be taken out of the hands of, uh, of surgeons? Uh, is there still a role for us to be involved? I mean, I've got my opinions, about, but I want to hear what your, what your thoughts are. You know, are we, is our business model, if you will, jeopardized? It's, it's a great question. So I think as a surgeon, we're lucky because there's very few people who can master surgery and it takes a lot of time, energy and effort. It's not something you can pick up in a weekend course. So I think there'll always be a role for surgeons. And, and I feel fortunate because when Botox and fillers and lasers become commoditized, we still have a, a position and a job. However, the single practitioner on his own or on her own may come to an end because the liability and the, and the expenses of running a practice and the headaches and burdens are becoming overwhelming for most people. And what I start, what I have now, I don't know if I could have started this 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, it was a lot easier to start a practice. It's much harder today. And there's, it's nearly impossible to comply with all the regulations we have on us. So it might be easier to go work for someone. And unfortunately, I see that as, a, as, a, as not a good thing. I think that at the end of the day, doctors are less committed to their patients when they become employees. I just, that's just been my experience of what I've seen. So, I, but that may be more the future is employed plastic surgeons. Yeah. And 
you're going to be surprised. I also think that three generations from today, our residents and our fellows are going to come to us. They're going to be like, you used to cut people? I mean, like you took a knife and cut people open? That's so barbaric. Well, this is what my wife found astounding. She she thought, she thought it was brilliant when she heard you saying this, you know, that, yeah. that uh, you, you know, you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I don't think it's our generation, the next one, but it's coming where we're going to be like, I can't believe you cut people open. I mean, look at today ulcers. When I was a resident, we used to cut stomachs out. Now it's, it's an antibiotic disease, you know, treated with medicines and gallbladders is an in and out procedure. It was seven days in the operating room and surgery when I was in general surgery. So plastic surgery in the same way. Well, the future of plastic surgery is we're going to find ways to treat the skin from the surface. Maybe we'll put something on the neck that tightens it to me like a polymer that tightens the neck. You put it on and like make it, we take it off at night and you have a tight neck. Maybe we'll find an exoskeleton we put on the nose or something, or we could slip on the nose that's resorbable, makes a sharp, tight looking good nose. So I think we're going to see future go that way because everything in medicine is going to less invasive and we probably will too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you made a good point. So one of the things I always tell my, you know our surgical colleagues is you can't ignore the because some of them still want to ignore you know or just have a little bit of non-surgical along the side. You, you know, the the non-surgical, as you know, is um, is is growing. Sorry about that. Is growing. You know, non-surgical is growing. What 20 percent or more, depending on what country and where what region of the country. And yet, surgical is two three percent. So those of us that are you know, and and it's going to be harder. I, you know, what I find is some of the younger folks that are coming out. They're not getting enough surgical um, volume to feel comfortable um, on their own. And, and as you talked about it, you know, just between the compliance and the regs, uh, it, it's harder for them to make a living. It's harder. It's a much more difficult. And also they have the work hour restrictions in general surgery, which we didn't have. And I hate to always say oh, back in the day when I, you know, we walk eight miles in the school. But the reality is, is that we were there all the time. So we developed a certain type of devotion. There was no clock to look at. There's no time. You were there till you were there. And I think that there's a value in that that is, is lost a little bit today that will make it harder to go out and practice and be there all the time on your own. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question because I know you got, you got a patient waiting for you there. Um, what's, you know, what do you want to leave as your legacy? What do you want people to remember Steve Diamond as, uh, you know, um, someday? You know, it's funny. It's uh, what's amazed me is how many people that were so famous when we were growing up and people you and I know that today my residents and fellows are like, who is that? Like you become irrelevant so quickly and you'd be surprised. No, actually, I, I just had this conversation with an applicant today about someone you and I both know. Yeah. And it's it blows my mind. And then I asked him about someone else and they're like, I, I this is a big name, a different one. And they're like, I, I don't think they have a fellowship anymore. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but, but my, so that kind of, I've, I've been recognizing that. So how do you maintain yourself? How do you create a legacy? Which I think at the end of the day, everyone wants to create a legacy other than your children, which are clearly your legacy. Professionally, how do you create a legacy? And to me, it comes in words. And now I've become a prolific writer. Like I find myself writing all the time. And my free time, what I enjoy doing is finding some crowded, an isolated table in a crowded cafe overlooking a beautiful vista in a foreign country with a language in the background I don't understand. And I write and write and write for hours. So I've accumulated pages and pages of articles and aphorisms. And my, my goal is to publish that, you know, before, before I leave this earth. And maybe that will be my legacy. Got it. Well, look, I'm going to let you go. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you in, in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, I know you shot the lights out in Miami with that meeting. They have got to be very happy with uh, with your performance and the people you have on board. I'm, and I'm, 
really excited to see where you th where these meetings are going to go um, in the future. I mean, they're they're taking on a whole new life, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm super interested in making them very creative and adding new educational forms. Which thank you, you're helping me with that, and I appreciate you know your involvement in Vegas Cosmetic Surgery, and I think I'm, together we're going to make some big big changes. Well, one of the things I want to do is I want to stir it up. I'm I mean, here's the challenge I have, and I think I told you this, Steve. You know, we we know we need the industry support, but I am so tired of the industry exploiting our people, and and I and I say that okay with you know with respect to those, but it's the same message over. I have put what I've done with that meeting is I'm putting a doctor at least one or two on each session, and I'm going to have them running around with a microphone asking the tough questions, and Love it. solicit them from the audience. Every time I do that, um, people rave about it because. What, you know what the audience is they want they don't want to just be talked at they want to have uh, a dialogue and they want to and you know what doctors still trust other doctors more so than anyone else yeah so you know that's what I'm hoping to do and, and hoping to you know maybe make an impact on that meeting so listen I'm gonna let you go I really respect your time and appreciate the fact that you uh, that you made the time to get together with us Steve all right we'll talk to you soon look forward my friend and I'll see you in Las, in, uh, Las Vegas. Okay. Talk right. to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye.